Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make it and make a lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is short-sighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Our Father God, we ask for your help as we consider your words. Please, would you help us to understand them? And to obey them for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're beginning a series looking at this New Testament book of 2 Peter, the second letter that the Apostle Peter, close friend and disciple of Jesus, wrote. And uh, we begin it this week, but it's a very fitting passage for today, a day of Christian baptism, because this little part of the Bible tells us very clearly what being a Christian is all about. 
what it means to know Jesus. So if, uh, if you're here this morning, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, there's an opportunity here as, uh, as I speak and as we look at this passage together to, to really think about what you think knowing Jesus means and place it alongside what this part of the Bible thinks and see how it matches up. You have an opportunity to do that this morning. But this letter was originally written not to those who wouldn't call themselves Christians, but those who would. It was a letter written to Christians, which seems a bit strange because they ought to know the answer to the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? What's being a Christian all about? And the reason is that there are two versions of Christianity in circulation. In Peter's day, and he'll say also in every generation, there are two versions of Christianity in circulation. So do you see verse 10? He wants every Christian person to make their calling and election sure. That is, make sure our life matches what God has called us to. So really this morning, we're to make sure our definition of being a Christian is what Christ's definition of being a Christian is. And we get an opportunity to do that straight away in verses 3 and 4. There's a little outline of uh, where we're heading in the next few minutes on the back of your service sheets. You might want to follow along with that. But in verses 3 and 4, Peter tells us what knowing Jesus is all about. And he says it's about escape and entry. Come come with me to verse 3. Where we see that there's talk of power, divine power, that's been dispensed to the Christian. Verse 3, his divine power, his, that is Jesus, our Lord, of verse 2, has given us dot, dot, dot. Divine power has been given to Christians. Now, let's come through what means. How has that power come? Verse 3, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness, the same Jesus. So, so somehow the Christian person is a powerful person because of knowing Jesus, what they know about Jesus. Now, none of this makes any sense until we understand the purpose The purpose of all this, the purpose of knowing Jesus, we see most clearly in verse 4. In verse 4, so that through them, the promises, the knowledge, knowing Jesus, you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires. He has in mind, in other words, an entry and an escape. That uh, little phrase in verse 4, to participate in the divine nature, means that that somehow it's possible for the Christian person, because of what they know of Jesus, to borrow, to begin to borrow qualities of God that used to belong to God alone, but that can now be shared with the Christian person. And and it's it's not just an entry, an entering into the character of God, but it points forward to an ultimate entrance. We see that in verse 11. Do you see that the The future entrance, the thing that defines the Christian person is that they will enter into, ultimately, one day, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. A world, this world, renewed, in which godliness, God-likeness, is entirely fitting. That's the ultimate entry that the Christian looks forward to. But the other um, pole, if you like, of Christian identity is not not entry but escape. So in verse 4, do you see that This turn towards a new world, this sharing of God's qualities, follows an escape. Verse 4. And escape, or having escaped, the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now we 
saw a, an old example of this in the story of Noah that was read in our first reading. But, but Peter writes, because there's a great problem with the race of humankind, with you and me, which is that we're locked in a destructive pattern of doing what we want. Now, why should that be destructive? Because doing what we want is destructive when what we want is evil. And, and Peter, when he says corruption, he means there's a great twisting as a result of that, as a result of doing what we want when what we want is evil. There's a great twisting that goes through the whole world and goes through our hearts. And if God's going to be God, that must lead to just judgment. That, that must have a full stop. That must come to an end at some point if God's going to be God, just as it did in Noah's day. And, and so Peter says that it's, it's really important that we receive power, external power, power outside of ourselves, to, to pluck us from that corrupt order of things, to, to break the ties that we have with that corrupt order of things that is leading to judgment. That's the escape that Peter's talking about. It's not a, a Christian retreat, oh, come away from the world, it's a dangerous place. But it is a recognition that we need to escape the corrupt order of things, a way of living for sinful, selfish desires, a way that will lead ultimately to judgment, says Peter. Now, now what does that mean? Let's pause for a moment. Peter's saying that the, the, the Christian faith, that the one that Abigail and Edward have been baptized into, the one that uh, lots of us here will say we're Christians, that that faith is one that's defined by escape and entry. It's an escape and entry kind of faith. And Peter would say, well, if that's not in our vocabulary, well, then we've missed all the power and the purpose of knowing Jesus. It's, uh, it's a little bit like this, perhaps. So we might say that the Christian story, to be a Christian, it, it, it's not to join a Sir Humphrey kind of story. I realize that won't mean much to, to many of us, but... Um, there was a the Yes Minister series, which some of you may know went out uh, in this country in the 1980s, uh, which gave a remarkably accurate glimpse of the civil service in this country. Uh, I say the civil service as it was then. I don't want to offend any civil servants here. I know, obviously, that the civil service today, the permanent civil service in this country, is a paragon of efficiency, seamless efficiency. Everything moves very quickly. But, but as it was then, Sir Humphrey was a really good representative of the British Civil Service. And when you entered the world of Sir Humphrey, as every minister discovered uh, to their disappointment, you entered a world in which nothing changes. Nothing changes. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. So, you know, a minister will come and say, I want to push through a policy change. They would come in. They're men in a hurry. They want to, they want to do something when they're in the department. And... Uh, Sir Humphrey would just say, well, we must, of course, establish a new secretariat to consider that. They will release some findings which we will carefully consider and weigh up as to what might be the pros and the cons of moving forward with such a policy. And the minister would say, you're saying it's not going to happen. And that's exactly right. Nothing changes. Nothing ever happens. And the reason is because it's not that kind of thing. It's not that kind of world. When, when you've come up into the civil service of Sir Humphrey, when you've come up against that, you've come up against the status quo. It's all about the status quo. Nothing changes. It's a status quo kind of story. It's not about leaving a world behind and looking towards a new world. Nothing changes. Nothing must change. And it's possible, it's possible that some of us think that Christianity is a bit like that. And so to be baptized into that faith is, is a bit like joining a great 
institution. It's maybe reassuringly traditional, although it doesn't change, and it doesn't require any change. It's not about leaving an old world behind. It's not about looking towards a new world. It's a status quo kind of story. It's a Sir Humphrey kind of story. And Peter says in verses 3 and 4, no, it's all about escape and entry. Because, and we'll see this more and more as we go on in this letter, because the one thing the status quo is, is unreliable. It's not going to go on. Things cannot go on as they always have. If God is to be God and judge sin, if God is to be God and one day take publicly, public control of this world in which godliness is fitting. And so what does this mean? What, uh, what does it mean that... Uh, Christianity is an escape and entry kind of story. What's it going to mean for us to live like that? What would it look like to be an escapee, as it were, to be someone who enters into this new world? Well, Peter tells us in verses 5 to 8. Do you see at the start of verse 5, he says, for this very reason. In other words, given that being a Christian is all about escape and entry, verse 5, do this. Do what? What's he saying to do? He's saying, make every effort to add to your faith, goodness, to goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For, verse 8, if you do this, if you possess these qualities, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you'll be using the power that's been given you in knowing Jesus for the purpose it's been given. So the answer of what we should do today, knowing that it's an escape and entry kind of faith that we've been baptized into, well, the answer is in verses 5 to 7 with this list of qualities, increase in these qualities. But it's a puzzling answer. It's hard to see how one follows from the other, isn't it? Well, don't resort to that old myth that um, being a Christian is about, you know, accumulating lots of good things, being a good person. Don't default to that old myth. It is a myth. It's not true. We don't earn God's favor by doing lots and lots of good things. That's the very opposite of Christianity. It's about rescue, escape, and entry. But what then does this mean in verses 5 to 7? What does it mean? Well, I think here is the thing about these qualities. Each of these qualities here that begins in faith, the very beginning of the Christian life, that ends in love, the very great goal of the Christian life, well, all these qualities that join the beginning to the end, well, they're escape and entry kind of qualities. They are how you leave behind this corrupt order of things and you turn towards and enter into the new, godly order of things. They're escape and entry kind of qualities. I don't know uh, if you've read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Um, I remember how strange it was to my ears when it was read in school. So I was in form assemblies, and this teacher would get up, and he would read from portions of the Pilgrim's Progress. And it was really strange to hear these personified virtues, people called hope and help and faithful and patience and passion. all, all these people being spoken of, these personified um, virtues. And it was really strange, but, but actually John Bunyan understood that the Christian life, of which his story was an allegory, 
is one in which the pilgrim journeys from one world to the next. And all the virtues are really friends that you meet along the way. They are how you leave behind one world and you move towards the next. So if you remember early on in the story, he, he finds himself in the slough of despond. He's there with pliable, and he can't get out. He's no way of getting out himself. And then a man reaches down and holds out his hand, and it's help, and help pulls him out, and help thrusts him on the way to the gate, and he goes on in his journey. And there's a sense in which uh, help and hopeful and faithful and all the virtues that he meets on the way, they're simply God's provision. They're given, they're power given by God from the very beginning of his journey. But he only meets them, he only comes to know them, he only comes to find them useful because he's fixed on an escape and entry kind of story. He knows that there's something to leave behind and he knows that there's something to go towards. And so this list of of virtues here, faith, goodness, goodness, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, and then on to love, they only make sense as escape and entry kind of qualities. Peter says, use the power that you've been given in knowing Jesus to leave behind one ungodly order of things and move towards a godly order of things. The list only makes sense. The power of knowing Jesus is only felt as we increase in these qualities. Now, I want just to, um, just to illustrate maybe with one, one example about how these might connect with one another. Because you see that they're, they unfold from within each other. It's not saying go and get something new. It's saying, no, this, this power is within the power that Jesus has given you. That you're to, as it were, bring it out from the resources he's already given you. But, but how does that work? And I just want to take one example of a connection. So, so how does knowledge, in verse 5, lead on to self-control, verse 6? How could knowledge lead to self-control? How might that happen? Well, when Peter says knowledge, he's got in mind in this letter in particular something, one piece of knowledge, something that's true of Jesus Christ, which is that he's coming again. We've entitled this series into Peter, the promise of his appearing. And that truth that, that Jesus will come again in glory... Um, that truth runs all the way through the letter. And that's the knowledge Peter has in mind in this letter. Now, when you know that, that tells you two things at once. It tells you that there will be an end to this ungodly order of things. It won't go on indefinitely. Living for sinful, selfish desire doesn't have a future in that sense because Jesus is coming back. And so that knowledge tells us that it's right. It tells the Christians tells Christians that we're right to say no to sinful, selfish desire. In that sense, knowing that there is a full stop, that there's an end to that, gives us the power of self-control to say no. Self-control is, is, is not something we drum up from within ourselves. It's a power that's fed by knowledge, by knowledge of Jesus Christ, that he is the one who will return to bring to a close sinful, selfish desires and introduce a new order of things in which godliness belongs. So that's uh, one way knowledge leads on to self-control. And Peter says in verse 8, do you see, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. You will use the power that God's given you for the purpose he's given you it for. Now I want us 
to come finally to verses 9 to 11. I want to assume, as I do, that I haven't persuaded everyone this morning. I want to assume, as Peter does, that there'll be some people who will still say, well, I'm not sure that being a Christian is all about escape and entry. It's not how I would define it, and in truth, if that is what it is, maybe I don't want to be a Christian. And so, Peter, I'm not sure if you've actually given a representative view of Christianity. I'm not sure if it needs to be all about escape and entry. Peter assumes there'll be some who will say that, there'll be some people who will think that, because there are different versions in circulation. And so, verse 9, he says, look, if anyone does not have these qualities, in other words, if anyone's not persuaded that this is what being a Christian is all about, he says something very rude. Do you see verse 9? He says, he's short-sighted and blind and has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. So what's Peter saying here? Well, I think he's saying that... um, If we let go of the truth that we have a world to leave behind, an ungodly order of things that we must break ties with, and a future real order that Jesus will introduce, if we let go of those poles of escape and entry, well, actually, there's nothing left in Christianity. There's nothing that we can understand that's Christian that makes sense anymore. Uh, Let's take an experiment. Forgiveness of sins. So forgiveness of sins. It is a glorious truth, and I, I hope you know this this morning if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, that the great offer and invitation of Jesus Christ is that you can have your sins washed away. That is very, very real. And the the reality that baptism is a sign of could be yours today. Jesus invites, offers that your sins be washed away. We had talk of cleansing sins being washed away. We saw that as Richard was explaining to us what baptism is. We saw that in the baptism itself. So at the very, very heart of Christianity is surely that your sins are forgiven. They're washed away by Jesus Christ. Everyone hopefully would agree that whatever real Christianity is, it's about that. But if you think about it, forgiveness of sins doesn't make sense. There's no great point or purpose to it if there's no great need for rescue, if there's no great need for escape. Sins only need to be washed away or cleansed. Because one day, sins will be judged. Sins only need to be washed away in advance if there is one day a judgment to come. Forgiveness of sins doesn't make sense unless there's a real need for escape. Unless there's a real need for escape. And so let me encourage us this morning that that actually what Peter is recommending to us and saying, Put escape and entry back into your vocabulary as Christians. Live knowing that escape and entry is real. This is lining up with reality. Do you see what he says? If, if we let go of it, well, actually, all our faculties that connect us to reality, everything that makes sense of being a Christian, is lost. Those faculties are darkened. We can't even understand forgiveness of sins anymore. Because beneath Christianity is not a story about a need for escape, but a reality about a need for escape. But if that's the warning, as it were, to those who who aren't taking uh, Peter's word that this is what real Christianity is about, verses 10 and 11 leave us with an encouragement. Verses 10 and 11, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall 
and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you do do these things, he says, if you do increase in these qualities, in other words, if you are prepared to to fix yourself on that path as God has fixed you on that path of escaping and entering, if you do do that, you'll never fall. And people who never fall are people whose feet match where the ground is. They line up with reality. You only trip when there's a bump where you weren't expecting it, when where you put your feet doesn't match reality. But Peter says you'll never fall if you fix your eyes on that hope as a Christian of one day entering the kingdom of Jesus Christ, this world renewed in his public control, the home of godliness. That is to line up with reality. And this is the promise, verse 11, you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In many ways, the the rest of this letter of 2 Peter is Peter persuading us that Jesus will come back. Because when you know that Jesus comes back, you realize immediately that the need for a rescue and escape, the need to have our sins washed away in advance of that judgment, is a real need. But equally we realize that that hope, that hope of entry that he holds out to us, well, that is equally real. And that is very true. And I'm going to pray now that we would line up with that reality. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father God, we thank you for these words in which you tell us what knowing Jesus is all about. We thank you that in Jesus Christ, we can know the power of rescue, of escape from an ungodly order of things. We confess our need of that rescue, and we pray that we would place our certain hope and direction of life towards that real entry, that one day we will receive that rich welcome and entrance into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that our lives might be fixed by this certain need of escape and this certain hope of entry. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.